Revelation 21 is where we are. And I would like to give just the briefest of reviews here with verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last time. And I'll just read them a verse at a time. And John is seeing the eternal state in vision form. Verse number 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Of course, they had passed away, and we can go to many places in Scripture to prove that, and we did go to a few last time. Uh, but, you know, the fallen aspect of the sea is gone, and it's peaceful like at the beginning when it was created, and God said it was very good. No more chaos, no more rebellion, no more danger. Verse number two. Not, it doesn't mean no more water. We're going to see water. In, in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, Verse number two. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's the perfect city. It's the city without sin. And, and I have to admit, I enjoyed too much to not get a chance to read it one more time to you, uh, what, what our brother wrote, um, Pastor Donner, a friend of mine, and and uh, found out uh, not the only one that has his books, you know, so there we go, you know. Um, but um, excellent. And imagine living in a place where there's no more sin, where it's only Christians and they live together in righteousness and holiness. It's never been done on this earth. You know, it hasn't been done in, in the earth that we know. But uh, this is the earth that there's going to be. And uh, many of you talked about what it would be like. You added some things I didn't add any of the things you added to me, uh, but uh, I'm just going to read you the things. Good things for meditation to think about. You know, a Christian society where believers live together in righteousness and holiness. Imagine living in a, true, a truly Christian city, a city where there's no need for police, courts, or jails, a city where there's no crime, fear, or violence, a city where there's no need for fences, locks, or alarms. A city where there's no discrimination between rich and poor or black and white. A city where there's no multiculturalism, no persecution, and no divisions. A city where there are no politicians, no regulatory agencies, and no oppressive laws. A city where everyone does the right thing all of the time in every circumstance. A city where everyone is patient, kind, and understanding and loving. A city where people care more about their neighbor than they care about themselves. A city where courtesy, selflessness, and serving others is the practice of every citizen. A city where there are no hospitals, doctors, or drugs. A city where there are no sirens, no screams for help, and no homeless people. A city where everyone is holy, happy, and God-centered. A city where the worship of God is the chief activity and delight of all people. That's the city we're heading to. A city like that, and many more things could be added to that. Okay. Verse 3, it's covenantal language. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he'll dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And if you've been here at the 10 o'clock, you understand that to be covenantal language. It's always the fact, uh, I am your God, you are my people. And then verse number 4, the wonderful no mores of the eternal state. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be 
No more pain for the former things have passed away. And that's as far as we got last time. So now we open up new material. And um, if my plan goes accordingly, I will watch the clock, but my plan goes accordingly. We should be uh, verse 5 through 14 uh, with only touching on 11 through 14. But just to just open it up a bit, you know, and then we'll do some more later of that. But verse number 5. Uh, let me read 5 through 14 I'll, in one lump here. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and she had great and high walls with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck by saying this, but it was hard for me to read that through like that, because I wanted to say things. I wanted to stop and say things at each verse. Well, now I get the chance to do that. <laughs> so here we go. That was just the reading. It's exciting reading when we understand what it means. And uh, may the Lord help us. Behold, I'm making all things new. Verse number five. Taken from Isaiah 43, verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And that's very common imagery for the book of Isaiah about the wilderness and rivers and desert. All things new. It doesn't mean there's no continuity between what we have today and what we will have. But we need to make certain, you know, that a sin has horribly ruined the way that God made us and the way that we're intended to be and this is God making all things new. Jesus the Lord making all things new. And making all things right that sin and Adam made wrong. We were made in a certain way. To live our best life on earth. So one of our famous Joel Osteen preachers got, got that one right. Except uh, he applies it wrong. You know, So misses the point here. Uh, we will be living our best life then because of sin, you know? Sin horribly marred and ruined everything. And we'll be remade, just like all creation will be remade, and it'll suit us perfectly for just the way we were made to be. 
You know, salvation comes to us in three tenses. I've said it many times. But it's something to really burn into your mind. I have been saved. I am being saved, kept and preserved by the power of God right now. And I will be saved. And uh, you find all three of those tenses throughout the scriptures. So today we're redeemed, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Creation itself groans while we wait for the final day. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to Romans 8. A passage there that talks about this. And really what's happening here is, um, you know, it's being personified. There's a personification going on of what creation is doing. And uh, when man fell, he didn't just fall for himself. He, he plunged uh, the earth itself into a curse, as, and all creatures too. So this passage of personification, uh, it's as, as if creation itself was alive and anticipating the day when the Lord Jesus Christ makes all things new. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18. Got too busy talking instead of turning. Give me a moment. We'll get there. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, or verse 18, sorry. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that while the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It seems to me that... Uh, Really, the entire cosmos is changed with the new heavens and the new earth. And Satan, he's gone. Those that fell with him are gone. The wicked principalities and powers are gone. They're all in the lake of fire. They're gone, you know, basically. They're in their own place away from us. And uh, creation itself will be a beautiful, wonderful place. The first earth was created with a potential of corruption, and it was corrupted by sin. Man looks at the world and, and sees global warming and climate change and natural disasters and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and wildfires as if natural disasters have never occurred, and these are just brand new things to us. And yet God loves to surprise us, doesn't he? Here we are just dying in a drought, you know, and it's over. California's done for, you know. And now they're having to dump the reservoirs because there's just too much. They're afraid of flooding with the snowpack melts. And what are you going to do? And, and then we're all going to run out of electricity. We're not going to have electricity. Except now the hydro plants are absolutely running at full capacity. God, God does what he wants to do. That's what it amounts to. Men like to think that they're in control. We're not. We're not in control, no matter what we may think is the case. 
And so with no sin, the new heaven and new earth will be perfectly and exactly what we need, with nothing to harm us as we live eternally in bodies without sin and corruption. Verse number 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. There's three things that uh, we see here. And, um, you know, uh, so it is done. That one first. On the cross, Christ cried, it is finished. But those are different Greek words. And even really a different message here. The wording, it is done, actually has the connotation of it has come to pass. What we've waited for has now happened. And we've entered into the eternal state. And then his self-declaration. And uh, we've seen it before. I won't turn you there uh, for, for time's sake. But Revelation 1, 7 and 8. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And then he says it again in uh, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, talking about exactly that same kind of language. Uh, it shows it. Just turn over a page and you can see it again in Revelation 22, verse 12. Um, Revelation 22, 12. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so... These are, the, these are the things, the self-declaration of the Son of God to us. And then the invitation. Notice the invitation at the end of verse number 6. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Uh, it's no accident that uh, John records Jesus crying out, you know, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. You know, it's no, no accident. And um, the invitation is also given in Revelation 22.18. It points ahead to that. 22.18. For I testify... Uh, I might have written the wrong verse. Oh, I wrote the wrong verse is 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. We, we do not um, deny that passage, and that's not an Arminian passage either. Okay? It's a true passage. And the true passage is simply this. If you desire the Savior, call out to the Savior. If you don't desire the Savior, you'll never cry out to the Savior. If you're waterlogged with the sin of this life, you have no thirst. The last thing you want is a, another full glass of water when you're waterlogged, you know? But if you're thirsty and you desire, there's a Savior ready to save you. Call out to Him. Take freely. That's the invitation. The invitations like that are always given that way in the Bible, you know? And, um, and the invitations are, are very, very true. And so many of you have taken up the Savior on that invitation. Well, we go to verse 7. He who overcomes. Christians are the overcomers. And the book started with individual letters to seven different churches. And every one of those churches, every one of those ended with, to he that overcomes, I will give. And then, 
according to the church and the situation of the church and the promises to that particular local church, a promise was given to them. A promise given only to the overcomers. And we have to be overcomers. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. Covenantal language once again. And then verse number eight. And we'll spend a little bit of time here because it's, it's worth spending some time. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now we already saw everything thrown into the lake of fire. And whoever's name was not written in the book of life was cast into hell. We already saw that, but that, that's not what you have to do with visions. Visions don't go chronologically, and they'll give us uh, this, and then they'll say it again later in a different way. And um, these are the people that are not there. These are the things that are missing in the new heaven and new earth. And they're worth looking at. So I spent some time looking up the Greek in each one and, and seeing exactly if there's some nuances here. And I found a few, you know. Um, remember the dead who were not found in the book of life were judged by their deeds. And here's a list of their deeds. Okay. Here's a list of the deeds of those that were not in the book of life and they were judged according to their works. Here's the works that they were judged by. Cowardly. Cowardly at first seems like an unusual, an unusual thing to put into the list. Some people are just not very brave. They're naturally cowards. But this means more than that. This means not having the courage to stand when you're put to the test. And um, it, it's not falling from grace. It's just basically uh, not, having, not being given by God the ability to stand in the day of testing because you don't have God. And so instead, you, you quit and you compromise and uh, you blaspheme if need be, whatever it takes to save your life. And there was that famous story that's in Fox's Book of Martyrs about the man who was told that he had to, all he had to do was sign his name to a declaration that had already been written, that uh, he wasn't a Christian and blaspheming the Lord. And he didn't have to do it. All he had to do was sign his name to the paper. So he did. And then his heart was just smitten and broken. And... What he ended up doing was he literally cut off his hand and said, here's the hand that denied my Lord. You know, so. Well, I wouldn't advise that, <laughs> but I'd advise standing strong. Whatever the case may be, the cowardly. Did not stand in times of persecution. Very, very relevant in this first century, to these first century churches that would go through persecution. They would not stand, they were cowards. No, God will give you, if persecution comes to our country and you are a Christian, you will be given by God the words to say and the ability to stand the time of testing. Otherwise there'd be no martyrs, you know. Otherwise there'd be no martyrs. The faithless, in other words, the unbelievers, those who do not have the faith exhibited by Abraham, the father of the faithful. Abraham believed God, it was counted him for righteousness. These are the faithless, the unbelievers, the detestable. There's an interesting 
uh, word there. Moral abominations, vile things, the kind of things that, that uh, well, have been, been partaken in down through the centuries, are being partaken in still today. If you want a detailed list of the detestable things that I'm not going to take you to, but you can read them yourself, read Romans 1, 18 through 32. These are the abominable, detestable things to God. You know, many try to read the newspaper into Revelation. That's not the way to interpret the book. But you can use Romans 1 to properly describe so much of what's happening in Western society today. Murderers, it is what it is. It says what it says. The sexually immoral, all sexual activity, except that which is ordained by God, which is between husband and wife. And Pastor Ken, I think, even quoted this verse this morning, um, Hebrews 13, 4. It's in my notes. <laughs> okay, so it was already there. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 4. The marriage bed is undefiled, but God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. And then sorcerers. Any kind of devil worship or Satanism. And um, we see it in our society. It's often done in fun. It's often done in, in mocking even. And rock bands like to take a, uh, the things. I saw a bumper sticker at Costco or a window sticker at Costco. The car parked next to me um, had on his window, detestable. Why would you call yourself detestable? Well, he did. Well, maybe that's a band. I don't know. <laughs> Probably is a band. Who knows? But uh, detestable was what he wanted people to think of. And I don't think that's really a good thing to, that you want people to think. Sorcerers. Any kind of devil worship or Satanism. The ancient people had their magicians. Uh, and they were not the pen and teller kind of magicians, which are really cool and fun. And I enjoy myself. And, and they'll tell you all day long that uh, these are tricks, you know. Be it sleight of hand or, or mirrors or whatever we're doing. Um, these are tricks that fool your brain. And you know it's not real. And they'll tell you it's not real. Like right up front, you know. And um, one of the magicians they have on their show will do the same thing. They, they, these are tricks, and they call them that. You know. But there are those that practice witchcraft. And you need to remember the Egyptian magicians were able to copy some of Moses and Aaron's miracles. And we've seen that the powers that the dragon, who is Satan, we've seen the powers that the dragon and the beast and the false prophet had, and no one practicing these things will be in heaven unless they repent and turn to the Lord. King Saul, a good example, the Lord left him, and the Lord would not answer him. So what did he do? He went to a witch, went to the witch at Endor, to call up Samuel since the Lord had left Saul. And as you read the commentators, they're split. Did he really call up Samuel or did he call up a demon that pretended to be Samuel? Well, I personally think the witch apparently did call up Samuel and she was horrified herself telling us that she probably was a fraud for most of the time and just making things up like most palm readers do and everything like that, even though it's dangerous stuff. Preying on people's emotions with their tricks. It's an evil thing to do. It still happens today. It's a fool's game. It's dangerous. But in God's providence, her magic incantations were successful. And in God's providence, I believe Samuel 
was called up and issued a proclamation of doom, exactly what he, what Saul did not want to hear. You know, well, demons don't know the future. You know, only God knows the future, and God can tell Samuel what to say. So you know, uh, take it for what it's worth. And uh, again, you get to pay your money and make a choice. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which one do you want to go with? Idolaters, the chief sin of the Old Testament. And still the chief sin of men today, men and women who put other things or anything ahead of our triune God. And all liars, because Satan himself is called the father of lies. And I think really the best thing you can do is you take a look at that list in verse number 8. And say, ah, we found the mark of the beast. This is it. This is the mark of the beast. And of course there are other things we could add. But here it is, you know. And so people think it's a physical mark. No, it, it's the way that you live your life. Christians have a mark on them. Uh, the lost have a mark on them. That's, I believe, the mark of the beast. We've been saying that all the way through the, the series here. So those who practice these things, continue in these things, and do not turn to the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ, will have their part in the lake of fire. Now we come to the new material well, that was new material. Now we come to a new section, the New Jerusalem. But the new section is really just an elaboration of the old section. Because verse number 9 and 10 are an elaboration of what we saw in verse number 2. Look at verse 2, then I'll read 9 and 10. Verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. Well, that's pretty descriptive, isn't it? We're going to look at that in just a second. Filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, the angels is a, a really an interesting thing to me. To go into such elaborate, usually John talks about an angel. Sometimes he says a great angel. And uh, different things are happening with these angels. But this angel, we've seen him before. And uh, look at chapter 17, verse 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And you know the great harlot is Babylon. The great harlot is the city of Babylon. So now we have two cities. And the same angel pointing out to each one. Uh, that's got to be a connection. I mean, what else could it be? And it even tells us who he is. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. And then it says here, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me. So we're going to contrast Babylon with the new Jerusalem. Okay. And so... You can't, I think there's an application here. And Pastor Donner makes a good application here. I need to give him credit for it because um, I don't know if I'd have seen it uh, on my own. 
But he basically says, you can't live in Babylon and Jerusalem. You can't live in both. You know, you're going to live in one or you're going to live in the other. Just something that's said a lot in the Bible in different ways. No man can serve two masters. All that kind of thought. You can't live in Babylon and Jerusalem at the same time. Because Babylon represents wicked human society. And Jerusalem's the holy city of the saints. And a Christian will live life in a wicked society, but must not partake of that society and be part in heart with that society. We must be strangers and pilgrims in this present foreign land. We need to do good as much as we can do good. We need to make change as much as we can make change. These are things that we can do in the midst of a society like our own. There are a lot of people that live in a society that can't make change at all. They're virtual slaves to their government. And there's nothing they can do. They, they are under, think of North Korea. You know. What's going to happen if you step out of line with the leadership of North Korea? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, yeah, well, say goodbye to everybody. Yeah, say goodbye. You're gone. You know, if they don't kill you, you'll just never be seen again. You know, they may decide to keep you around and torture you and make you labor, a laborer for the rest of your short life. So, you know, that's been the, the lot of people down through the ages. We're very blessed that we can actually do something. Even if it's as small as voting. Voting isn't much, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't think you and my vote will ever change any election at all. But that's not the point. It's doing something. But there's more you can do than that, you know. And certainly witnessing and speaking about the Lord and uh, speaking to Christ and doing what you can. Being a faithful Christian. These are the things that we can do and, and make changes, you know. And then, let me ask you this question. The imagery of God's kingdom is the holy city and the bride. What is New Jerusalem? Is it a city? Or is it the people of God? And the answer is yes. It's a city and it's the people of God. You say, well, how could that be? It's, you know, it's, you're talking about a physical city with walls and everything like that. How, how could that? It's a vision. It's a vision we need to understand that uh, we're not going to see a literal city of the dimensions that we'll look at next time. We won't look at it this time. We won't. We're not going to have time. But we will spend the time it takes to go through the rest of the chapter. And we probably won't be able to do it in one shot. You know, because what's going to happen as we get down towards... Um, uh, we're going to have to deal with um, 11 through 14 again, because I'm only touching a little bit of it right now. Um, but um, we're going to end up going to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. That's what we're going to have to do. Because the vision that John sees is really the same vision that Ezekiel saw. It's worded differently. It's not exactly the same. Uh, Ezekiel's talking mostly about a temple and the temple that he's talking about is, is so massively huge that it almost is to the point of ridiculous. Well, there's a reason for that. It's not the temple that Jesus came to. And it's not a temple that's going to be built someday uh, because um, that just isn't <laughs> what it's all about. There's meaning to this vision. And there's meaning to this vision. And the, word that, the, the words that really draw our eyes there are right here in the text, uh, verse 10. 
And he, that's the, of course, the, the angel we're talking about, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And, and what does it say in Ezekiel? Well, Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 and 2 say this. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, the 14th year after the city, that's being Jerusalem, was struck down, on that very day, boy, that's pretty exacting, isn't it? The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Look, that, that ties together. High mountain, city, a vision. Um, Ezekiel's in Babylon. He did not go to Jerusalem. It's a vision, and he sees it. John's on Patmos. He did not go to earthly Jerusalem. It's a vision. He sees it. Both of them are taken on to a high mountain and see what they saw. So, you know... Um, Put all these things together, which we will do next time. And um, I'll just give you a couple of, of, of little ones to come here. Uh, verse 11, having the glory of God, the glory of God there in the eternal state. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear and crystal. We'll have to deal with a lot of stones the next time we talk. She had a great and high wall with 12 gates. Why a high wall? Why, why do you, there's, there's no enemies. Why would you need a high wall? It's a picture of the fact that there's stability and security and there are no enemies. They're not real walls. You don't need them. But it's a picture of what we have here. It's God showing us something. The safety and security that we'll have eternally. And then not just that, but 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Pretty clear. The Old Testament saints. And uh, verse 13, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on it were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, we're back in chapter 4 and 5 again, where we see the 24 elders that symbolize the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints brought together in one in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints prospectively looking ahead, the New Testament saints uh, looking back, but both saved by faith, both saved by the blood of the lamb uh, because um, la true lamb and goat and, and other cow and, and bull sacrifices could never save. There's only one blood sacrifice that saves. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Once for all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. So that's just a little touch of what we're going to be going to in this next section, which is a lot of visions and a, a lot of strange sights, a lot of things that will be hard to understand, a lot of things we probably won't understand, to be honest with you. But uh, John wants us to link this vision with the visions of Ezekiel. And um, we just close by saying this. What's heaven going to be like? What's the new heaven and new earth going to be like? 
Well, it's not really a city, okay? It, it's kind of indescribable, is what it is. It can only be told in symbolic picture form because we couldn't understand it. So could, you could write out what it, God could write out what a doll is and you just go, I don't, I don't get it. You, know, you could read right now, read, read uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48. Just read through it and you go, I have no idea what, the, what he's talking about. And that's something as simple as that. We're not gonna really be able to understand what the eternal state is like. But I can tell you this, the Bible says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, or entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So let me leave it with this. It's going to be better than you could ever imagine. It's going to be better. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're not prepared at this time to really comprehend all that we will comprehend, to understand all that we will see, to marvel in all the glories. People talk about heaven, and, and most of the time what you hear about heaven is from the world, a place that maybe you really wouldn't want to go. Who wants to float on a cloud and play a harp and, and just uh, hang around, you know? And that's not what heaven is. That's what, not what the new heaven and the new earth are. But Lord, it is indescribable to us at this present day. So we'll keep looking, and we'll get some further insights. But when it's all said and done, I think we'll just have to say, ah, that's great, that's wonderful, we're glad to see that. But we know that it's even better than we imagine, and even better than can be described at this particular time to those of us that are fallen mortals. So Lord, help us, we pray, to, to long for that day, and long to see Jesus, and we give you thanks. In his name we pray, amen.